Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls, and it was like, you'll have to give us a ride. You can't fill us, though. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. Thoughts were all alone in this empty void. You know, the head in the fishbowl. This doesn't look right. They got close enough where he said he could see. So, you know, we switched to Tuesday nights for a couple of reasons. A couple of reasons. One was that you wanted to switch to Tuesday nights. Right. Kind of, you know, divided your work your, your work week up a little bit, um, gave you some more free time on Sunday. And the second reason was so Luke could join us because Luke was off on Tuesday nights and now is not off on Tuesday nights. This really doesn't matter for the listener at home when we do the show because obviously you guys you know, get the show at different days of the week, sometimes on Monday, sometimes on Tuesdays, sometimes on Sundays. But it does matter to us because, you know, Luke obviously isn't here again and would have been really cool if he was. You know, that since we made this allowance to actually try to get him here. So, yeah, that's the main announcement that I wanted to start the show off with. Trying to think he just doesn't like us, Adam. It might be true. It could be. Uh, I, I I don't know. I, I'm not going to move it to Wednesday nights <laughs> because then he's going to start working on Wednesday nights. And yeah. So I understand you had cats in the studio. Yeah, we we had a studio full of cats this weekend. They were uh, how many cats? Three. Three cats. 
Um, they did good. They were they were well behaved. They didn't scratch anything up or poop anywhere that I found anyway. <laughs> um, they did, however, walk on the console. It has a cover, which you know I made sure to put that on there to protect it. But they still they, sure. you know, they walked around all over, it and it's got hundreds of buttons, and they managed to press every single one somehow. So I came out here to get set up tonight and spent a good fifteen minutes sitting there just. Buttons. Their little, their little, their little paws just yeah. pushed all the buttons and messed everything up. Messed everything up. Hopefully, it's all working. It looks like it's working fine. Well, damn cats! It happens, I suppose. Welcome to Get Paranormal, everybody. And we're going to have Jenny Ashford on tonight. Turns out, I had one more to push. My, you had one more to push. My mic was very quiet there. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, that's real time. That's real time as you're recording the podcast. Like I said, we're going to have Jenny Ashford on tonight. We're going to talk about her book, The Faceless Villain. We're going to talk about crime, uh, unsolved cr- murders from 1900 to 1959. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So this will be kind of a different show for us. Yeah, we, I we wish we could sneak more more true crime stuff in because it's, it's a lot of fun. It's something yeah. I'm really interested in. And I think we will. I, I really want to. <laughs> Sorry, I started yawning there. Um, Because it's really interesting to me, too. And since she wrote a book about it, I figured this will be a good way to start maybe incorporating a little more of the true crime stuff in. It is fascinating. It is really, really interesting. But I wanted to talk a little bit since we haven't really, you know, in these last few shows, we've kind of had all these intros where we've actually talked to basically what our second guests and on the next show, we'll actually be doing that again. Um, But. I wanted to talk about what's going on, and this is like, you know, a bit of an old topic at this point, but I wanted to talk about all this stuff, this fallout that's been happening, about the Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey and Louis C.K., all this that has happened. Rob, I'd like to get your thoughts on this, man. What do you think is going on here? As usual, I... uh, Try not to pay attention? Yeah, I've been kind of removed from it i i mean what i've heard at least secondhand it's none of it surprises me at least i said this when the first first thing with with weinstein came out it was like Mm -hmm. well you know he's 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 taking all this all this flack for it which he should be but at the same time he's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to i think hollywood especially old hollywood um the old entertainment industry back in the day when you know it was uh it was it was a lot tougher. It was a really cruel world, and it was really easy for these people that had this money and this power to exploit these people that had these dreams and these hopes. Sure. And I, I think that we, you know, we, we found one person to vilify when I think there's probably thousands and thousands out there who have done the same or similar. Right, you know? and 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 I think they already have. I mean, this has been, this has just been like the floodgates have just opened with all this. I mean, first we had the whole Harvey Weinstein scandal that happened. And then we had everything that came out about Kevin Spacey. And then him basically coming out as gay after he was, um, accused or this, one of this, one of these guys, like the guy's name was Anthony Rapp said that, uh, 
he molest he was molested by Kevin Spacey when he was fourteen, and then after that, some other people started coming out and saying Spacey molested them when they were that age or closer to, and that is just crazy, man. It just like blew up. And now even Kevin Spacey has like he's being erased out of a movie that is coming out, like Ridley Scott's new movie. Really, he's basically re- he's basically erasing him from the movie and putting Christopher Plummer in it. Wow. Which I think, oddly enough, I think Ridley Scott wanted to put Christopher Plummer in the movie to begin with, but they the studio said need to put somebody that's got a little more recognizable. So they got Kevin Spacey and they put him in old man makeup. So I think Ridley Scott's just doing this just because that's what he wanted. Now he can just get what he wants. Um, I don't know. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it's something that's supposed to come out in December, like next month. And they're like filming all these scenes. There weren't too many (laughs) scenes that they had to film. But they're gonna re they're gonna insert Christopher Plummer and take Kevin Spacey out of the movie. And like House of Cards gone. gone. Yep. Netflix dropped him. Um so yeah, I mean he's he's done. His career is over. And Louis C.K. is the other one that whose career apparently is over because you know, all this accusations about him taking his penis out and waggle and like wigging it in the air in front of women and Netflix drops all his specials HBO separates from him something they were planning to do with him FX dropped all his shows and then just other crazy stuff like uh people put taking um these accusations against like Dustin Hoffman and Richard Dreyfus. Really? Yeah. You haven't yeah. heard? Man, I haven't heard any of that. And now George Takai. What? Yes, no. George Takai. No. Yes. Yes. Damn These it. men are coming out to say that George Takai <laughs> touched them and and then now um what was the one I just I just saw just recently it was Tom Sizemore touching an 11-year-old girl. And now it's gone into the realm of politics where you know the judge Roy Moore stuff. Yeah. You're familiar with that. That stuff's messed up. Yes. Now, it's... <clears throat> it's all messed up, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. But Okay, so... With celebrities, it's... It's hard, because I don't want to, like... um, Just jump out there and say, oh, yeah, someone accused them, you know, that that's it. They must be guilty. Yeah. Because these are people that would be easy to go after. And if you get one person, you're picking out a celebrity and then other people jumping on that bandwagon. Like, it would be, you know, it'd be really easy for that kind of situation to arise as well. Um, At the same time, I don't, I'm not saying I doubt any of these allegations. It's just, I hope that nobody innocent gets thrown, wrapped into this, like. That's the thing. It's like. Witch hunt at the same time. Yeah, the witch hunt mentality of some of this. Of, of some of this, it's like not the people who have done this shouldn't be accused. I don't want anyone right. misinterpreting right. what I'm saying here. I mean, yeah, but. I, I, I don't, I don't b- mis disbelieve it, but like, when is is this just just going to keep going and going? Are people going to keep coming out? Like something, somebody. I guess I did. just want to believe that George Takai is innocent. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently, with the Dustin Hoffman thing, it was apparently something that he did like 30, 40 years, or even forty years ago. That 
I don't, I don't, maybe he hit on somebody or said something to somebody. And I haven't heard much more about the Dustin Hoffman thing. So maybe that's kind of stopped, but it, it just seems like how far does it, how far does it go to where it just becomes like, we, it's just another witch hunt kind of thing. Another interest factor. And that has come out through all this. You know, remember we talked about Pizzagate and we kind of went through that like ad nauseum. Yes. And we kind of like said that maybe there's a grain of truth to it. You know, that was kind of our final verdict on it. But we sure. weren't sure if like what was being said about the Podestas and all that was necessarily real or, or whatever. Well, Corey Feldman. And Rob actually gets the Corys, um, he gets the Corys confused. The Corys, Heyman Feldman. Yeah. Corey Feldman is the one that's still alive. I thought they were both dead. Yeah, Corey, yeah, well. <laughs> Which one was in the Burbs? Uh, I don't know. Maybe Corey Feldman. Okay, he's my favorite. Well, they were both in Lost Boys. Right. And, um, well, no, Corey Feldman's only in Goonies, I think. I think he was he was the only one Feldman? in cuties. I thought that was Corey Haim. Yeah, we get them all confused. Um he has always maintained that and this has come out in the light of the whole Weinstein stuff and Louis C. K. and Kevin Spacey. He's always maintained that he was sexually abused when he was a child in Hollywood. And he's always said that he's going to, he is going to spill the beans about who it was that molested him, who these people were. He said this over and over again. He said it in his autobiography. Um, and now he is saying it with this GoFundMe campaign that he's doing to raise $10 million to make a movie. And... I don't know about Corey Feldman. I, I don't know if he's, I don't know if the guy's all there. First of all, he's done some pretty weird stuff. You want to hear my only Corey Feldman story? What's that? I met him at Bonnaroo. Did you really? Two or three years ago. Yeah. There was, there's this thing at Bonnaroo called the super jam where a bunch of artists get together. Nobody knows who it's going to be until the performance happens. I mean, other than people working, obviously, but Corey Feldman was hanging out for this whole thing and, and he was going to be a part of it somehow. And, after the rehearsal, he was walking out, and there's these video, like, um, teleprompter screens, you know, for, for just to uh, display the, the lyrics to the songs for whoever's singing or whatever. And as he's walking out, he, he, he just steps on one of them and just goes crunch, and he's like, oh, my bad, and just walks out. And the poor video guy's like, that's a $3,000 screen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, my bad? Oh, no. Anyway. <laughs> So it seems like the guy's not all there. I think he was really kind of, well, he was definitely really high. Yeah. 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 I mean, and he's, and he's, he's used drugs in the past, pretty heavy drugs. Um, and I think there are some kind of mental issues that the guy has. I don't think he's mentally ill, but I'm pretty sure there's some mental issues, but you could, you could make a case that some of that is from the abuse that he has suffered. Well, and just growing up in that child star kind of, Right. Lifestyle, too. I think right. that's, that's got to be hard to 
you know, live a normal lifestyle after <laughs> right. growing up that way. But So we have a clip. I know this is the first time we've had a clip in a very long time. But I thought this was interesting. And some of the stuff that he was saying and some of the justification that he's giving for asking for $10 million. Uh, this is from, I think it's Good Morning America. Whatever, I don't pay attention to these things, so whatever show Matt Lauer is on. But this is Matt Lauer talking to Corey Feldman. And uh, this is about almost a five-minute clip. So let's listen to this, and I'll kind of, you know, we'll unpack it on the other end. And Corey Feldman joins us now a lot. Corey, good morning. Good to see good you. Good morning, Matt. You reacted to that comment sitting here. I'll get to that in a second. This is very personal for you. Yes, it's it very is. emotional. It's something you've talked about for years. Let me start by asking you, how prevalent is what you're talking about in Hollywood today? I believe there's a lot of darkness in Hollywood right now, and I believe it's been there for quite some time. And as we've seen with the Harvey Weinstein scandal, it continues to unfold. New names come forward every day. Now there's names of uh, misconduct with Kevin Spacey, with this you know child actor who came forward today. It's going to continue unraveling. This is just the beginning. It's just the tip of the iceberg. So everything you're seeing is building up to what I believe is going to be a dam breaking open. So let me talk about this Corey's Truth effort. You want to raise $10 million. You yes. want to pr- produce and direct this documentary. It's not a documentary. It's a I film. I stop you there. It is a film. I want to make a feature film, which is why we need the budget that we need. There's actors, there's scripts, there's special effects. Is it effects, going to involve real effects. people, real names of people active in Hollywood it right now? It will be a very true story. We will have every name that every everybody that affected my life. I'm going to give the perspective that I can give what I viewed, what I experienced from a firsthand account. In, in all fairness, though, we've been down this road before with you and you have promised Never. in the past to name names. Never. In your book, you said you when you were talking about your book, you said you were going to blow the lid and this off. This is of why this. I'm doing this, because when I wrote my book, the publishers prevented me from writing the names. Well, down. That's what I meant by they we were down this road before. Yeah. We didn't get the names. Exactly. We were promised exactly. last time, which is why I'm taking the matter into my own hands. And this is why I need America's support. I need the world's support, because I must make a film with no executives, no VPs. Yeah, why do you no need ten lawyers? million dollars? Film students make movies for fractions. Well, that's a film student. We're talking about a theatrical release. We're talking about, I'm going to four-wall the theaters, I'm going to self-distribute, self-market, make the film, and hire a team of attorneys who are going to pr- protect me and the film when everybody comes Today, after me. Today, you've raised just under $200,000, correct? Okay. Is that about right? So it's going to take a long time to raise $10 million. we got two months. And yeah. you've just told me that this is still prevalent in Hollywood. So yeah. every day you wait, every day you try to raise money, mm. I I would imagine you believe that children are being abused by pedophiles in Hollywood. So why are you sitting down talking to me? Why aren't you sitting down with the police right now? I've told the police. In fact, if anybody wants to go back to 1993, when I was interviewed by the Santa Barbara Police Department, I sat there and I gave them the names. They're on record. They have all of this information, but they were scanning Michael Jackson. All they cared about was trying to find something on Michael Jackson. Who you said, by the way, did not abuse you. Who Michael was innocent, and that was what the interview was about with the police in 1993. I told them, he is not that guy. And they said, well, maybe you just don't understand your friend. And I said, no, I know the difference between pedophiles and somebody who's not a pedophile because I've been molested. Here's the names. Go investigate. And let me push this forward. There are thousands of people in Hollywood who have this same information. 
Why is it all on me? Why is it if I don't release the names in the next two months, six months or a year, I'm the bad guy. I'm the victim here. I'm the one who's been abused. I'm the one who's trying to come forward and do something about it. But there are, go hold back. on, please. I'm sorry. There are thousands of people out there, Matt, who have this information. Any one of those child actors that went to the teenage soda pop clubs with me when I was a kid know who those people are and the people who ran it. Anybody can go back through history and look at the teen magazines and say, what was the name of that venue they were all promoting and who ran that venue and who endorsed it? You've said you've had death threats yes, um, because you have this information and have threatened to expose it. Another reason, I think, to go to police, that's a crime to threaten someone's life. I've gone to the police with that as well. And, and, And what would be wrong with going to the police now again? Didn't work out in Santa Barbara. There's a statute of limitations, Matt, in the state of California, which protects people. It's not that way in New York. It's that way only where the movie industry is, conveniently enough, in California. That's the seriousness of this. You cannot, because if I were to go to the police, I would be the one who's getting sued. Henceforth, I need a team of lawyers and I need a team of security to be around me at all times to keep me safe so I can get this message done. I'm not playing around. It's serious stuff. And I've I will release every single name that I have any knowledge of, period. And nobody's going to stop me this time, as long as people support this. Corey Feldman. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. Totally from his point of view, and within any way not really... Supporting him or defending him or anything like that. A couple of interesting things that he says there is that he went to the police in 1993. He says that they were focusing on Michael Jackson. And he says Michael Jackson wasn't a pedophile, which I tend to disagree. We actually had this debate off air. Um, But that's neither here nor there. They went in 1993, and they didn't really do anything about it. Another thing that he says is that the statute of limitations is passed, and only in California is that is that true, where the Hollywood where where Hollywood is located. I don't think that that's only in California. I feel like I've seen that on a lot of crime shows. Yeah. So there could be a little bit of a, of a, there's definitely some paranoia here yeah. with him. But I mean, but if, he if, kind if of he's been through some, all this and he's been points. receiving death threats, then I don't, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, a, there's good reasons to be paranoid and bad reasons to be paranoid, you know? Well, he also wants to do a film that is totally outside of that system. Right. But he believes that he needs $10 million to do it. And, and part of the reason he believes he needs $10 million is, is to pay for lawyers and to pay for security that will protect him. Well, and self-distribution and all that. I mean, that's yeah. expensive without a big, you know. Right, right, right. But there's a definitely a paranoia here. So there's, you know, as I believe, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Right. Then, you know, he's dealing with, I think, some serious, he's probably dealing with some serious information. There's been some other things that have come out since then. I think this is almost about two weeks old at this point, as we're recording this. Um, apparently, you know, you know, his friend Corey Haim, who died 
few years back. He, um, his, Corey Haynes' mother had had said, why doesn't Corey Feldman just come out and say this? Why doesn't he just give the names? Um, he said, she, if he, she said that if he gives the names, then I'll support him. And that's what Matt Lauer was talking about at the beginning of the interview. Sure. Um, and then the news about Corey Haynes came out just recently that Charlie Sheen molested him on the set of the film Lucas. So this stuff is just rife within Hollywood. Like this is a, it's, it, it is a dirty, dirty world there. And apparently it's been seen as just normal. And it goes back to that, um, documentary that I watched called an open secret, which was, all over the internet when the whole Pizzagate stuff happened of these guys that were open pedophiles. And it was mostly with these young, about like, you know, 11 to like 14 year old boys usually. And then remember all the stuff about Pizzagate and what I, the point that I made about James Alephanta's screen name with the, uh, or his, his picture of Antinius, the uh, boy lover of the Emperor Hadrian. You know, there's definitely this cabal out there in Hollywood. And I think that's what Corey Feldman is reacting to. So I found that very, very interesting, some of the points that he made in that. As crazy as he sounds, I think there's a kernel of of truth I don't. Yeah, I don't really think he sounded all that crazy, to be honest. Though, I mean, um, definitely upset and definitely a little paranoid, right? But I don't think I, he didn't come across as um, irrational, yeah, or anything. You know, is um, I don't know. It'll be be interesting to see how that develops. Yeah, for sure. Um, apparently he has come out with a name of one of the people. So it would be no one that no one really knows, but he's come out with a name about with a name since then. I think he did this on the Dr. Oz show and has tried to get the police interested and they won't touch it with a 10 foot pole. That's what he said. (laughs) So Exactly. So is there some kind of control and some kind of pull that keeps, you know, that keeps this from going on? I mean, this is like ancient Rome level shit. Yep. It really is. It really is. Well, I don't have anything else I really want to say about that. So I think that we will get to the guest, um, Jenny Ashford. Maybe we'll get Tom to, uh, to come on too. So, and we might have a Patreon only a small patreon only episode with her as well so all right lucky patrons you lucky patrons keep keep sending the patreon stuff in for (laughs) us all right guys hey we got a dollar 50 on patreon i was really happy about that oh somebody gave us dollar 50 and that's recurring dollar 50 every month all jokes aside we really do appreciate you guys yes absolutely You, you make this possible um, and we're going to keep trying to throw extra bonus stuff your way. Absolutely. All right, let's go to Jenny Ashford, and then the outro. I've got another something else I want to kind of address, and then that's it. So we will be right back on Conspiracy Moments. <laughs> 
Take two on this. Uh, we didn't have batteries in the mouse, so <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> My bad. Things things happen, you know. And we have Jenny Ashford with us. Um, Jenny, I think this is like the third or fourth time that you've been on. So yeah. we, we, we owe a whole bunch of like smoking jackets to all of our third and fourth time guests. So we'll put you guys on the list. Nice. Um we're going to talk about your book, The Faceless Villain. And this is going to be, like I said before in our intro, this is going to be kind of a new thing for us. Um, not necessarily because we have you on, but this is the first time that we've done a full show on anything dealing with true crime. So right. this is going to be kind of like a virgin journey for us. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your book, The Faceless Villain, like what, uh, how you kind of structured it, um, what kind of cases, what was the criteria for the cases that you used? Okay. Well, actually, I mean, you know, I've been on the show before and I started mm-hmm. out as a horror writer and then I went into paranormal nonfiction, but the whole time I was writing the paranormal stuff and the horror stuff, I'm like, God, I've always really wanted to do like a true crime compilation book. Cause I love true crime. I'm just like fascinated by it. And I got the idea initially it was only going to be a single book. And I was just going to pick like the creepiest unsolved murders from the 20th century, because I'm, I'm really fascinated by unsolved stuff. Like, you know, the stuff that's solved, that's fascinating too, but I'm kind of intrigued by ones that they never figured out who did it. So I started making an outline and I quickly came to the realization that I had so many cases that I wanted to put in the book. I said, this book is going to be like war and peace. It's going to be like a thousand pages long. And I was like, (laughs) maybe I should break it into like a series. So I decided to do like a three book series. So this that just came out, yeah, is just, is the first volume. And it basically covers like, um, Crimes I picked like from about 1900 to about 1960. And the ones I wanted to pick, like, you know, there are some that are really well known, like the Velisca Axe Murders, the Black Dahlia, things like that. And, you know, I have to cover those, obviously, because those are really famous and a lot of people like to read about those. But I wanted to find ones that were a little bit lesser known. And I also wanted to pick ones that were that had like weird, like mysterious kind of details. Like if it was just, you know, and I, I wrote this in the introduction, I said, if it was just like a mob hit or like a political assassination or, you know, something like that, I'm like, you know, that's terrible that people got killed, but it's, it's not mysterious really. Even if they never caught the actual person that did it, there's like no kind of creepy, creepiness about it. So I said, well, I want to kind of stick to that. So, you know, I, I picked, you know, I didn't have a case for every single year. So, you know, there are some that kind of skip, you know, I do skip a few years. And also the way I wanted to structure it too, I wanted it to be kind of like, 
not just sort of like an encyclopedia of like this case, this case, this case. I kind of wanted to do a little bit of um, more like a narrative kind of flow to it. So yeah. some of the crimes, there was some overlap, like especially if it was like a serial killer, it's like sometimes they killed a few people this year and then they killed a few people the following year. And in between, there was like another unrelated crime somewhere else. So I actually kind of put them in that order rather than, you know, just talking about this case and then end and then that case and then end. I kind of tried to write it in sort of a chronological sort of order. So sometimes I don't, you know, I don't know, like I wanted to do it that way. I don't know if some people are going to be like, wait, I don't remember what happened in this thing. Cause it was like two chapters ago, but you know what I mean? I thought it would be all right. And people would be able to keep up with it. Cause I just, I thought it would read better that way. Yeah. At, at first I was kind of like, Oh, what's going on here. But then as a kind of the flow of the book, you know, it didn't take me long to realize, okay, it's like a narrative. I thought it was interesting how you did that. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I don't, I don't know. It's like, originally I was just going to write it like regular, like each case, but then I yeah. was like, no, maybe it'll be neat if I kind of like thread them together, like how they actually like in the order that they actually happen. Yeah. I think there was a couple places where I didn't do that. Like, especially if there was like a really long gap, like in between, like, cause some cases, yeah. you know, it went cold and then like 10 years later, you know, something, some development. And I was like, well, I don't want to leave that long of a gap. So sometimes I would just put a note at the end, but of the chapter wherever I was talking about. But most cases, if it was only like a few, a, a year or two in between, then I would usually just, you know, break it up that way. Yeah. There, there was some of the years, like, especially as you get later, later in time, there were some of the years where you had like maybe four cases all together. So yeah. like it made more sense to do it that way than rather doing like a chapter on each four of the cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cause yeah. some, yeah, some years for, for whatever reason, like 1954, for example, there was like, you know, five or six like unsolved murders that year. I don't really know why they were totally unrelated, but you know, and then some years we didn't have any, but right. I'm not really sure why that happened. <laughs> Yeah, and it was also seemed to be like some of the cases where you would have this, like somebody would be taken to trial. Yeah, and there was pretty much just like the idea that maybe this person actually might have done it, but there wasn't enough uh, evidence to accuse them of it. So you still kind of put it in as an unsolved crime. Yeah. I mean, you know, like I said, I want it like some of the crimes. It's like, yeah, this person probably did it, but they didn't have enough evidence to convict them. But then again, some of them had some evidence kind of against it, too. Like, so it's still possible that maybe they didn't do it. So I like to keep that ambiguity. There are a couple in there that, you know, the person that went to trial and got off. Yeah, they probably did do it. But, you know. I just, I just kind of, I, I had criteria, but I didn't stick to it like super, super rigidly. If the, if the case was interesting enough, then I just put, then I put it in there. Right. Yeah. I thought that, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting as well. So yeah. I made a list of cases and we might get to them all in the time that we have you on. Um, but we're also going to do a Patreon only thing for, for two cases that I thought were like some of the like, like needed like more of a narrative. Yeah, but, uh, I want to talk about more of the lesser known. It, it's kind of how I wanted to structure this this interview with you, because uh, yeah. yeah, like you said, everybody knows the Black Dahlia case. There's been 
tons of books written about it. There's been tons of radio interviews about it. So people, you know, if they're not familiar with it, you know, they, they can go look it up. But, yeah. uh, you know, I do find it interesting in that case how the guy who wrote the Black Dahlia Avenger now yeah. thinks that, like, his dad was a Zodiac killer and the uh, and the Unabomber and, you know, all that. That's right. So. <laughs> well, it's sad because, yeah, Steve Hodel, his name uh-huh. is. And it's sad because I almost kind of buy that maybe his dad killed the Black Dolly. I'm like, yeah, that could be. Like, right. some of the right. some of that then sounded pretty good. But then when he just kind of went flying off the rails with it, and then he did this, and then and he shot JFK, and he did like, a, I'm like, just stop. You like, were- he actually <laughs> said he shot JFK? <laughs> Just made no. I just made that. Uh, okay. <laughs> There's been stranger things. To, I can tell you. So I know he hasn't said that. <laughs> let's start in 1902, going way oh. back. And these are some really lo- lesser-known stuff that a lot of people are not going to know. Yeah. Uh, we start with Rose Horsent, the Peasenhall murder. Yes, and this is actually, I think this is a lot better known in the UK than it is in the United States. And this is kind of one of the cases where probably they know who did it, but there's possibilities that it could be other people too. Um, But Rose Harson, she was actually a servant in uh, the house of a Baptist elder named Deacon William Crisp and his family. And she had worked there for quite a while. She was only about 22 years old. And uh, she lived in this little place called Peasenhall, which is in Suffolk County. Now, there had been rumors previously that she had been having an affair with uh, the choir master in the town who was a Methodist elder, and his name was William Gardner. Now, the kind of around the town, I guess, like there had been some people that said, oh, they heard them like having sex or something like that. And I, you know, I don't know how true that is, but the, but the rumors had been going around that they had been having an affair on the sly. And so what ended up happening there was that it was the end of May in 1902 and Rose got a note and the note said that, um, was, was from someone that said they were going to meet her at midnight, said, put a little light in your window 10 o'clock for 10 minutes, you know, to say that I can come over or whatever, and I'll come around to the back of the house. Now, after that night, they don't really know like what happened after that, because the next morning, uh, Rose's dad came to the crisp household to visit her and found her dead. She was lying on the bottom of the servant's staircase. And she was kind of like, I mean, it had obviously happened the night before she had a night. She just had her nightgown on her socks. She was kind of all cut up. Um, and her body was a little bit burned almost as though someone had tried to set her on fire. Uh, but they hadn't really succeeded. And, uh, there was a bottle with some paraffin in it. And, uh, there was a little bit of a torn newspaper as though someone had tried to use it to start a fire. Now, The first thing they thought, because the note that she had received, because they searched her room and they found this note that said, you know, will you meet me tonight or whatever. And they said, well, that note looks like William Gardner, the Methodist elder, the choir master. And, you know, rumor has it that they've been having an affair. So must have been him. And it did kind of seem like maybe 
he was the guy because he didn't live that far away. It was only like a few hundred yards. Um, he was just like next door, a couple of houses down. And the scrap of newspaper that they found was actually a newspaper that he subscribed to, but the, you know, the family that Rose Harson worked for didn't subscribe to that newspaper. And also the bottle uh, of paraffin that was found at the crime scene had a, it was a prescription bottle and it once had medicine in it. And it had been prescribed originally to William Gardner's kids, like a couple of his kids. So it kind of looked like maybe he did it. And then when they did an autopsy on Rose Harsent, they discovered that she was six months pregnant. So the police were like, well, obviously, you know, she was pregnant. You know, he wanted her to have an abortion. She wouldn't have an abortion. And, you know, he said, oh, well, meet me tonight. We'll talk about it. And then she's like, no, I'm keeping the baby. I want the money. And he killed her instead. Mm -hmm. So, but, uh, but William Gardner was like, you know, obviously it wasn't me. I didn't father the child. I didn't do any of this stuff. And he said he was home in bed with his wife, Georgina, all night long. And Georgina said that that was the case. She backed him up on it. And also, um, one of their neighbors backed them up too. So she said, well, I was awake all night. I live right, right next door to them. He never left the house. No one left the house. I didn't see anybody leave. And he's like, and I would have heard them. Um, there were a couple of other things that made it look like William Gardner maybe had done it. Like he had a little knife and it had like blood in the hinge. And some of the neighbors said, oh, he, um, he had started a bonfire like out in his yard, like the day after the murder as though he was burning clothes or something like that. But he kind of had an excuse for everything. He was kind of like the knife. Oh, what well, was just, you know, rabbit blood. I killed a rabbit. And you know, the bonfire was just, we were boiling some water and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so you know what I mean? And, yeah. and all right. So the thing is though, Rose, uh, whether she was having an affair with, with William Gardner or not, she was actually, um, pretty popular. Let's call it that, uh, around the village. <laughs> and they actually found in her possession, they found a whole bunch of like, uh, love letters and poems that were like pornographic and, uh, and they were all from different dudes. So, uh, apparently that was her thing. She liked to have like erotica, like sent to her and things like that. So the defense at the trial, because William Gardner actually was arrested and put on trial. Um, they said, you know, she had all these guys like sending her like these really salacious letters and poems and stuff like that. It's like any one of them could have gotten her pregnant and any one of them could have killed her. You know what I mean? It's that could have been anybody. And, uh, they also kind of introduced a little bit of uncertainty too, because they said, you know, maybe it wasn't even a murder. Maybe she was rushing down the stairs, you know, to meet her boyfriend or whoever had written her the note and she tripped and fell you know, and like the, the lamp she was carrying, like broke and it cut her all up and then it kind of set her on fire. And yeah, I loved, and, I loved that. <laughs> right. So it's like, you know, far fetched. Sure. <laughs> Weirder things have happened. <laughs> so, so although, uh, so William Gardner was put on trial. Now the first trial that they had, um, 11 of the 12 jurors voted to convict him, but there was one that would not. He was like, I don't think there's enough evidence and I'm just not going to change my vote or anything like that. So it was kind of, it was a hung jury. And, um, so they had to have a second trial and they had that, um, 
later or at the beginning of 1903. Now, it was weird because the second trial, not really a lot had changed. Like they all give the same testimony and stuff like that. Um, but this time, I guess because it had been, you know, a few months and people were kind of over it, they weren't really mad about it anymore or anything like that. And this time, 11 of the 12 jurors voted to uh, release him and one wanted to convict him. And at this point, I guess because in the UK at the time, and I'm not sure if it's still like this, but you had to have a unanimous decision one way or the other. And uh, since they couldn't, and since they'd already had two trials and evidently, you know, they, they weren't going to be able to decide on anything, uh, they basically just said, well, we'll let him go, but we're not saying he's innocent. That was kind of the judgment that they gave, which I guess is called Nola Persequi. I don't know if I'm pronouncing sure. that correctly. But yeah, so they're saying, well, he's free, but we're not like exonerating him. So he left and uh, his wife and kids and they moved away and uh, no one heard a peep from them, uh, you know, until much later. And, uh, you know, so did William Gardner kill? It's possible. But like I said, you know, she had a lot of uh, boyfriends and, you know, they didn't have DNA at the time. They couldn't tell whose kid that was or anything like that. Could it have been an accident? I doubt it, but I guess it's possible. Um, she had another boyfriend that was named Frederick Davis. Uh, some people speculated it might've been him. Some people even speculated that William Gardner's wife, Georgina had killed her because she was jealous yeah. and she got William to cover up for her to, you know, they, they both were like, you know, we're just going to deny everything. Um, but really they, that was about as far as it went. And I, I think most uh, researchers probably do think that William Gardner did it, but there was evidently not enough evidence to tie him to it. So uh, he basically got off with it if he did do it. <laughs> yeah, the way that they the way that they decided that, where they said they they thought he was guilty, but they didn't have enough evidence to really charge him. Yeah, kind of sounds a little bit like the West Memphis Three case, you know, yeah. where they yeah. they let him off, but they were still. Had to plead guilty. Yeah. Let's pick another one from the 19 aughts, uh, <laughs> 1905, Mary Sophia Money. I believe this is another one from uh, from England. Yes, this is also another British case. And actually, like I said, again, probably better known in Britain. I think even, uh, uh, I want to say, uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle actually might have written a short story kind of partially based on this case several years after it happened. This one is kind of odd because Mary Money, um, she worked in a dairy. I think she was about, she was in her early 20s. And she decided like one Sunday night, she was, she told her uh, roommate that she was going to go for a walk. And, you know, she put on a dress, she got her little purse and she went out for a walk. It was about seven o'clock in the evening and uh, her roommate thought it was a little weird, but, you know, not so weird that she was like, hey, what the hell are you doing? Or she's like, I'm just going for a walk. I won't be gone very long. Now, she goes to the train station and she goes in the candy store by the train station and she knows the girl that works there. And she says to the girl, she's like, she buys some chocolate or whatever. And then she's like, oh, well, I'm going to Victoria, meaning she's going to take a train. So why she told her roommate that she was just going for a walk and she would be back. No one really knows, but evidently she wasn't really keeping a secret because she did tell her other friend at the candy store, Hey, I'm going to Victoria. And she told another guy at the train station, Hey, I'm going to Victoria. So evidently 
she bought a ticket and got on the train. Now, several hours later, uh, there was a train had gone through the tunnel about 45 minutes before, and there had been some workmen uh, on a crew, and they were working in this tunnel called the Merslam Tunnel. And, um, you know, after the train had passed through, they said, okay, well, we're going to go back in there and go to work. So the main guy, the, the head guy of the crew, uh, William Peacock, he goes back into the tunnel and he sees um, what looks like rags on the side of the tracks. And he's kind of like looking at it with his lamp and stuff like that. And then he sees a shoe and uh, then he sees a hat. And then he sees that the wall of the tunnel is just like, there's just blood all over it. And uh, the body of this woman was, I mean, obviously it had been run over by the train. Um, her face was flattened. One of her legs was almost pulled off. Um, you know, Ooh. her arms were crushed and things like that. Now, uh, they didn't know who she was at first. Uh, they didn't find any identification. Her purse was gone. Uh, she didn't have a train ticket. She didn't have any money. She didn't have anything like that. So um, they kind of, they took her to the police station or the morgue or whatever. And then they had, you know, pictures or a uh, description of her. And her brother came and identified her and it was Mary Money. Now, at first, they thought that she had committed suicide. She had just jumped out of the train. But then uh, when they, when they uh, examined the body closer, they saw that she had part of a scarf uh, stuffed into her throat and that the inside of her mouth was all torn up like she had bitten down or like she had been fighting. And uh, there were a lot of wounds on her hands and things like that, like she had fought with an attacker. And it later came to light that some um, kind of employees of the railway and stuff like that said, oh, yeah, I saw a girl that looked like that. And she was sitting in one of the carriages and she was sitting with a man in a bowler hat with a mustache. And it's like they looked like they were making out. Huh. Um, so that and, you know, he's like, could they have been fighting? Sure. But he's like, I, it looked like they were making out. So it wasn't reported because it didn't look that weird. And so they, uh, the police, they kind of searched the carriage and everything, and they didn't really find any evidence of any violence. There was no blood in the carriage or anything like that. Um, so they kind of determined that this man, whoever he was, must have just, I don't know if he attempted to rape her. I don't think she was actually raped, but he must have just like, overpowered her, stuffed a gag in her mouth, and then just opened the door and thrown her out of the train as it went through the tunnel. <laughs> Jesus. And for whatever reason. And um, another employee at another railway station said, you know, at the Red Hill station, I saw a man with a mustache and a bowler hat just calmly getting off the train and, you know, walking down the road, never to be seen again. So they're speculating that... I mean, from the autopsy, she had eaten a meal about three hours before she died. They figured it was somewhere before 10 o'clock and uh, that she was probably still alive when she was thrown off the train, like she wasn't killed on the train and then ejected. So she had eaten a meal about three hours before that. So they're speculating that she must have met this man for dinner somewhere 
And then they got on the train. And then for whatever reason, he decided to kill her, whether she, you know, rebuffed his advances or what, whatever. And, but the weird thing is that no one in her family or none of her friends or anything like that had any idea who the man could be. They're like, she didn't really have a boyfriend. It's like, she didn't really seem particularly interested in dating. She hadn't told anyone where she was going. Um, she hadn't acted any different, like in the weeks prior to her death, like, you know, like she had a new man or anything like that. And they just thought it was very strange that she had just kind of gone, Oh, I'm going for a walk and then got on a train, presumably met some man. And then he ended up killing her. And, uh, they never, never, ever found out who that guy was. They had no idea, no suspects, no nothing because they said all Debs, the only description they had was bowler hat and mustache. And they're like, you know, this was 1905 everybody had, a right, bowler, right. everybody had a bowler hat and a mustache. It was like, that doesn't really uh, solve anything. Everybody looked like Jack the Ripper back then. So, yeah. Or H.H. H. Holmes. They all yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. So that's about as far as that went too. I mean, they, they said it was weird because she didn't really seem like she was trying to be sneaky because she did tell some people where she was going, like her friend at the candy store, but she didn't tell anyone she was meeting a man. She didn't nothing like that. They never found her purse. They never found her train ticket. Then they have no idea who that guy was or why he killed her or anything like that. And that, that case really kind of freaked me out just because it seemed so random. Like what was, what was she up to? What would, you know, did he just, did she just meet him on the train and he just decided he was going to, or did she know him or it was just that weirded me out. Possibility. He tried to go too far. He didn't like it. So he threw her off the train. Yeah. It's like, that's that's crazy. Think of that's And yeah, she was all, she was all torn up. I mean, from the description of it, I was just like, and and, and think about it. It's been over a hundred years and dude got away with it too. You know, like he just got away with it. And that's, that's what kind of uh, freaked me out. That's why I wanted to specifically do a book about unsolved murders is because yeah, none of these people got caught. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or if they did, they got that they've managed to fool the jury enough to where that they could get acquitted. Right. Exactly. Uh, 1918. Wanangata Station. This is Australia. Yeah, this is actually kind of a good one. Uh, yeah, a little bit more obscure, probably. I'm scrolling down to the page so I can get all the little details here. So. It, it also seems to be like, too, you know, there's a, there's a preponderance of just violence against women in your stories. That you, uh, that you, yeah. And, yeah. and women and children. And then there, you know, I just watched mind Hunter on uh, Netflix. Have you seen that? I want to, I want to start watching that. Yeah. That's pretty, some pretty disturbing stuff in that as well. Yeah. I just, I don't know why I'm just so, it's funny because, um, I think Tom gets more bothered by it than I do. Like I'm bothered by it, but I can still watch it. Sure. Like he doesn't like, like all, like I was in my office the other day uh, putting some shelves together or something like that. And I just put on forensic files and uh-huh. just like, like just let it play like on a loop <laughs> on Netflix while I'm putting, and it's like all these people getting murdered and stuff. And I'm just putting bookshelves together and he's like, God, what are you doing? He's like, you just hours and hours. You just watch <laughs> well, it's, it's so, it's so soothing at three o'clock in the morning when you hear, <laughs> and the, and the severed head was laying in a pool of blood next, <laughs> next to the couch. The arm was in another position. 
<laughs> right. I don't know. What it is. It's just it bothers me, but not. It's hard to explain. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Like this yeah. with with Halloween recently being over, like I, I just gotta say this stuff freaks me out way more than any kind of like oh, yeah. monster yeah. movie or ghost story oh, or like just people. People are terrifying. You know? <laughs> it's real, you know? Yeah, and like Ugh. and the scary thing is like a lot of these and I'm actually kind of glad that I've started researching like all these really old cases because and I love like Victorian era cases too, because there's like a bunch of those that like that are not as famous as jack the ripper and they were like really horrible and some of them were just totally random and it's it's kind of like i don't know i I feel like people nowadays are like oh people are so horrible and all these serial killers and stuff like that i'm Mm -hmm. like people back then maybe were worse Mm -hmm. i i feel like people were maybe worse i mean especially like um all the axe murders and like beheadings Uh like that it's horrifying. And a lot of times, particularly the murders of women, it's like usually cause, cause I have a few, um, in here that it was men that were murdered, but usually the men were murdered like for a reason, like, you know, Oh, they made someone mad. Like, you know, right. they, like, political kind of thing or, you know, they are gambling were debt or yeah. Yeah. Whereas the women is just, she was just sitting on a train and someone just decided to bash her in the head. You know what I mean? It was just like, there didn't really seem to be any reason other than, Hey, you, <laughs> I'm just gonna like, you know, it's, uh, it's horrifying. And yeah, it like, is. in a way, I think it was worse back then. Well, they always talk about the good old days, you know, and like, just all they got to do is read your book and they'll be like, the good old days weren't so good. I mean, so people good. were killing each other left and right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly think, and you guys have made this point on the show, honestly, thinking about it, like, I really think that, like, the internet has some people's, like, dark urges are being satisfied now on the internet. That's why you're not seeing as much of this, like, serial killer crap like you used to. Yeah, I definitely do feel like that's a factor because you can easily, if you have some weird fetish or something, you can easily find other people like to hang with and to talk to about your problems and mm-hmm. stuff like your interests. And I feel like, you know, before the internet came along, nobody had that. So if you had some like kind of weird proclivities or something like that, you didn't have an outlet for them. You didn't, you thought you were alone and that could kind of mess you up. And I think people got kind of warped by not having someone to talk to about it. Yeah. It's much healthier now that like people can kind of get together and talk about their weirdness and, you know, not inflict it on other people. I think that's actually a big help. Right. Well, yeah. this, this case of one got a station, this actually deals with the victims and these were primarily men, I believe. They were both men. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's really, I'm not really sure what the reason was here. Uh, but this was a very strange case. This happened in a very remote, uh, part of Australia and it was, uh, got a station was a cattle ranch and there was a guy who was, um, like the overseer and his name was James Barclay and he had lived out there alone. Um, but he needed, you know, a handyman and someone to cook and things like that. So he hired this guy named John Bamford. And uh, so John Bamford comes to work there in uh, late 1917. And, you know, evidently these two guys got along just fine. They're at this, you know, cattle station out in the middle of nowhere. And they're just like cooking and looking after the cattle and all this other kind of stuff. And everything is fine. 
And then, so, you know, the, the guy had only worked, John Bamford had only worked there for a little while. Um, and then they went into town to vote on something. And then they were like riding back on their horses. They were riding back to Juan and Gata and something befell them. No one really knows what. Now, nobody knew that they were missing uh, for about a month. A friend of theirs came to the station to drop off some mail that he had picked up in town, and no one was there. And he's like, well, that's kind of weird. You know, usually they would be here. He's like, the only clue that they found was that someone had written home tonight in chalk, like on the kitchen door. And so, you know, the guy, his name was Harry Smith, who was their friend. He lived, you know, a few miles away. And he's like, well, you know, maybe they just are out doing something or other. He's like, I'll just leave the mail. I'll hang around and see uh, if they come back. And, you know, we'll see what we can see. So he stays at the station for two days and they don't come back. And he's a little concerned, but not super concerned. I mean, you know, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. They, you know, maybe they're riding around, they're camping out doing something or other. So he doesn't really do anything. So then about three weeks later, he goes back out to the ranch and nothing has changed. The mail is still where he left it. The dog has not been fed. I mean, the mm. dog is like starving to death. Mm. And at this point, Harry Smith is like, okay, something bad happened. So he kind of looked around the house, but he didn't see anything. So he rides to the next town over, which was quite a long distance and reported them missing. So, you know, a search party comes and they start looking around now about a quarter mile from the house, they find a skull. And they kind of dig around and they find a skeleton and they presume that this is James Barclay because of his clothes. Uh, they recognized his clothes and he had like this particular belt that he always wore. And they said, okay, well, that's James Barclay. It looked like the dingoes had kind of had at him and, and stuff like that. But he'd obviously been dead uh, for quite a while. Um, they determined that he had probably been shot in the back. Um, the house was not ransacked exactly. Um, a few things were thrown around, but nothing that alarming. Uh, it looked like James's gun had been fired fairly recently, but they couldn't really tell how recently it was. Um, they didn't find any blood in the house. Now, John Bamford was missing and some of his clothes were missing and also his horse was missing. So, they assumed that the only other weird thing in the house and, and this kind of, this detail kind of creeps me out like more, even though they never really found out anything or why this was like this, they said when they searched the house, they said they had a little pepper pot in the kitchen and they tested what was in there and it was strychnine. Mm. So, but they don't know, like the guy wasn't poisoned. He was shot. Mm -hmm. So they're like, why is there strychnine in their kitchen? Who knows? But the, yeah, they had a they had a pot full of strychnine in their kitchen for whatever reason. So since John Bamford was gone and since his horse was gone, they figured, oh, well, John Bamford must have killed his employer, James Barclay, and then taken off. So and so so they put out like, a you know, an APB or whatever, whatever the old Australian equivalent of an APB was. <laughs> they, they said, you have a, there's a 200 pound uh, reward for information 
you know, finding John Bamford because he obviously killed this guy. And then, you know, much, much later that year, uh, the outcome of the, of the case was that, okay. So the police are still looking around for John Bamford, presuming that he's the one that, uh, killed James Barclay. So they're, they have another search party, including Harry Smith, who was the guy that originally found the body. And they're looking around near where, I mean, they eventually found John Bamford's horse just kind of running around loose about 20 miles away from the, from Wanagata station, from the ranch. And so they're kind of searching around where the horse was found and they see this little shack or like a little cabin and there's like a pile of logs like outside of it. And they see a boot sticking out of the logs (laughs) and they go over there and take the boot off. And there's a little skeleton foot in there. Mm. Now they dig this body out and they determine that this body is John Bamford. And he's also been dead for a very long time. And he had been killed by a single gunshot to the head. So now they're like, okay, well, we thought this dude killed James Barclay, but now this dude is dead, and he's obviously been dead for about the same amount of time because he was, you know, skeletonized. So now they have no idea what could have happened to these two dudes. All they were doing was they were just riding their horses to this town about 20 miles away. They voted on some stuff. They stayed at the town overnight, and then they rode back, and somewhere in between there, they disappeared. Um, There was speculation that maybe John Bamford did kill James Barclay, and then James Barclay's buddies like found out about it and then killed John Bamford later. Uh, there was speculation that they were both killed by thieves, although nothing was stolen from the house or from them or anything like that. And, you know, John Bamford's horse was just found running around that no one took it. So they really have no idea why, what happened or, you know, what could have occurred that they both got shot. And this one was weird to me because, you know, the first guy was found at the house. But the second guy was found like 20 miles away. And they looked like they'd both been dead about the same amount of time. I mean, this was, you know, like 1918. So it wasn't, you know, super like CSI or anything like that. Right. But they're like, it, it would have been unusual. Like, you know, did he kill that one guy? And then he took off and then he got killed later by somebody else. Nobody knows. And I don't really know if they ever even figured out whose shack that was where they found John Bamford's little boot sticking out of the logs. And that's pretty weird. And the weird thing, too, is that the son of the first guy that was killed, James Barclay Jr., um, he actually went and worked for Harry Smith for many years. Um, Harry Smith died in 1945. And uh, I think the the dead man's son was working for him all this time. And then many years later in the seventies, um, someone was writing a book about the history of the area and about wanting got a station. And they interviewed James Barclay jr. About the murder. And he was kind of, um, not cavalier about it exactly, but he was kind of like, well, you know, whoever did it is probably dead now. And it's like, you know, no one can figure it out. So what's the point of worrying about it? But he also said something. He made a comment about both the murderers. 
So they're not really sure if he kind of knew more about the murders than he was letting on. But they, so they're speculating that maybe there was more than one person, but they never figured any of that out either. Mm. So, yeah, that's also very weird. Wasn't there, wasn't there too, like the, when they were looking for um, John Bamford, wasn't there people coming and saying that they had seen him the such and such place? And like, did that happen too? One guy said that um, one guy said that he was John Bam. Like he turned himself. Oh, okay, in. okay, okay, yeah. He found That's out was. that he was just a crazy guy. Like, <laughs> like he wasn't John Bam. He was some other dude. Yeah, that that al- <laughs> that always buddies the water. Yeah. So I think and th- it happens alarmingly often. Right. <laughs> so I think the same year, uh, this we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Axe Man of New Orleans. We got to get some some axe murders in here. So yeah, this is great. And actually the axe man <laughs> of New Orleans, it's funny because, um, he's quite famous and he's quite like a, a well-known serial killer and stuff like that. A lot of his victims surprisingly did not die. And, um, this, for some reason, this detail like really stuck out to me because when I was researching the case, I'm like, wow, a lot of his victims, he like hit them in the head with an ax and they lived. <laughs> yeah, it's like he was, was not very good at what he did. I guess. <laughs> it's like that. That really scared <laughs> me out. I was like, I kind of thought axe to the head. Well, you know, that's the end of you. But evidently not, because a lot of these people did not die from the injury. Right. But yeah. So yeah, this was uh, this was also in uh, 1918. Uh, and May was the first couple of victims. What the axeman of New Orleans. His first um, kind of, you know, his modus operandi, the first few murders, was he tended to target couples in Italian groceries. Um, Because I guess, you know, back in the day in New Orleans, like a lot of the grocery stores have had like apartments behind them where the owners would live. And he would go back there and just like whack them in the head. So his, his whole deal was, he often would pry uh, panels out of the back door with a chisel, and then he would just come into the house. He didn't bring an axe. He would always use an axe or um, uh, like a razor or something else that was in the house, a weapon of convenience. Uh, most of the time it was an axe, but not always. Um, the first two that he killed were uh, Joseph Maggio and uh, his wife, Catherine. And uh, this was behind an Italian grocery and they were sleeping and he actually slashed their throats. Now, these two did die. Um, Joseph Maggio's brother actually lived next door and he was a barber. So at first they thought that maybe he had something to do with it because um, because the the straight razor that had been used to cut their throats, you know, was was like his straight razor. But he was, you know pretty soon they figured out that it wasn't him. And, um, cause they, you know, they found the razor in the yard. That was another thing that the ax man tended to do. It's like, he would, he would use something that was in the house and then he would just leave it. Like he would leave it in the yard covered with blood. Mm. And despite leaving clues everywhere, he really, he never got caught. So, uh, the next one, it was another Italian, uh, grocer, and his mistress. Now these two did not die. Um, they were both hit in the head with an ax, 
but they both lived. Now, the weird thing, the guy's name was Louis Besame, and his mistress's name was Harriet Lowe. And they were both taken to the hospital and things like that. Now, Harriet Lowe was unconscious for a few days, but she woke up and she recovered. And she said when she woke up that her uh, boyfriend was a German spy. And so her boyfriend, who had also been attacked by the Axe Man, was arrested. Okay. And yeah, so <laughs> she, th- this, this woman, I don't know what her problem was. Like, I don't know if she was this crazy, like before she got attacked, but she came up with all kinds of crazy stuff. Like while she was in the hospital. Well, she was hit and, in the head with an ax. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm thinking. So maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it like scrambled her brain a little bit. <laughs> So uh, she also said that the press were trying to discredit her by printing the information that she was not actually this guy's wife, that she was the mistress. So she was kind of making a big stink about, I'm not going to cooperate with the police and do the investigation and all this other kind of stuff. But, you know, the police, they kept uh, the guy in custody for a couple of days and they're like, obviously he's not a German spy. So they let him go. And when, Harriet Lowe was let out of the hospital though. She went back to live with him. Like he was like, okay, you can come back even though you said I was a spy and got me arrested (laughs) or whatever. So they went back and lived together. And I guess that guy's wife came to town. I don't know how all that sorted out, but you know, the, the weird thing is a couple months later, Harriet Lowe actually died. Um, not from her injuries directly, but she was getting surgery to like, to fix her face, like from the, from the attack. And she actually died during the surgery. And before she died, she told police again that her boyfriend was the axe man. So he got arrested again. And he was actually uh, in jail for quite a while until he got uh, let go. But while he was in jail, there were several other attacks. Uh, The next one was uh, uh, a pregnant woman. She was eight months pregnant. Her name was Mrs. Schneider. Uh, they don't give her first name. And um, she actually was not hit with an ax. She was actually hit with a lamp. Um, the guy, he, he he pried open the door like, like he usually did. And then he just picked up this really heavy lamp that was next to him and just smashed her head in with it. So like I said, weapons of convenience, usually an ax, but not always. Wow. She also lived. Um, so... Yeah. So at this point, they're like, okay, well, this is obviously a serial killer. They're like, even though, you know, this person got hit with a lamp and the other people was a razor or axe or whatever, they're like, he's using the same way to get in. He's using weapons of convenience. He's leaving them. He's leaving the bloody uh, weapons behind at the scene and stuff like that. So they figured that that's probably what that was. Um, Now, after the pregnant woman got attacked, it was only five days And then there was another one. And this was Joseph Romano. And he was actually attacked in a house where two of his um, nieces were also in the house. They were like in the next room. They were not attacked, but he was. Um, He actually, he was hit in the head and he saw someone, they all saw someone jumping out of the window, but they couldn't tell what he looked like because he was just all in black and he had a hat on or whatever. Um, this was actually an ax attack and Joseph Romano lived through the attack, but he died a couple days later. Um, and this was kind of the case that 
made everybody in town start to freak out because now they're kind of like, okay, this is a serial killer. And he's just breaking people's houses and smashing in their heads with axes. And this is at the point where the press started calling him the ax man. And the, it's funny because, well, not really funny, I guess, but you know, at this point, since the press had picked it up and run with it, pretty much the whole city just went crazy. And the police were just getting calls all the time. It's like, Oh, there's a guy lurking in my backyard. There's an ax in my backyard. There's this and that and the other thing. And they just like, couldn't uh, keep track of it. But then it kind of went quiet for a while. Uh, there weren't any more for several more months. Um, then it was March 10th, 1919 was the next one. And this one was actually a family that was attacked. Um, Rosie Cordemelia and her husband, Charles, they were both hit. And also their two-year-old daughter, Mary. Now, the mother and father survived, but the two-year-old girl did not. She was dead at the scene. So this was also an axe attack. Now, a couple of days after this, the axe man pulled a Jack the Ripper. Evidently, he sent this big, long letter to the press and to the police. And he in it, he basically said that he wasn't a human, that he was a demon, um, that he was from hell and that they weren't ever going to catch him and that he could kill a lot more people if he wanted to. So it's like he was kind of being nice by not doing it and all this other stuff. And then he kind of made this weird bargain. And it's funny because there were actually like a lot of um, like blues songs and stuff like that written about this at the time where he said, I'm going to come over your city uh, at this particular time. I think it was like 15 minutes after midnight or something like that on March 19th. And he said, every house that has a jazz band playing, cause I really like jazz. I won't kill them. Right. So he says that, and it's in all the papers. So whether this was really from the killer or not, nobody knows. But on that night, since it was in all the papers, everybody had jazz music playing in their house. They just had all the doors open, and they just had the music blaring out into the street and everything like that. And evidently, uh, if that guy was the killer, he was like, okay, well, that's good, because he didn't kill anybody that night. Huh. <laughs> Yeah, so, I, I, that's a that's a very unique story. Yeah, so they actually, like I said, there were there were uh, some blues songs that came out called like the Axe Man's Jazz and stuff like that. That mm. were kind of about that night where where everybody just stayed up all night blaring music into the street to to keep the Axe Man away. Mm. But uh, yeah, so there was another like weird thing that happened too. The previous victims, Rosie Cordemelia, whose uh, daughter had been killed and she had been attacked too, but she didn't die. Um, she was in the hospital and she was recovering and she told the police that the person that had attacked her was her across the street neighbor, Yorlando Giordano, who was an old man. And he was the man that had helped her like, because she'd been screaming and he came over to help her. Um, she said that he was the killer and that his son, Frank, uh, was all had helped that, uh, Frank was 18. <clears throat> now these two were arrested and were convicted. Now, Yorlando Giordano, who was 70 something years old, you know, even though they said he could barely lift an ax, you know, let alone hit someone in the head with it. 
he was sentenced to life in prison and his son, Frank, was sentenced to death, even though they said, you know, the in this particular case, the Axeman had come in through a door panel and they're like, Frank was way too big to have fit through this little door panel. This guy would have had to have been really skinny. But these two were in jail for a long time before they finally got let go because a bunch of, you know, a bunch of other crimes happened while they were in jail. So, you know, that was a huge miscarriage of justice. And, and, and it was a few more months, I think it was uh, August of 1919. Uh, there was another attack. This guy was named Steve Boca. Uh, he was also hit in the head with an ax, but he also lived. Um, then the next one was a 19 year old girl. Um, she was also hit in the, in the head with an ax. She, um, she lived also her, her head was all messed up and she lost most of her teeth and stuff like that. But, uh, she did survive. Now the last one, uh, was a man named Mike Pepitone and he was in the house with his wife. Uh, his wife was not attacked. She saw a figure jumping out of the window, but couldn't identify him. Um, Mike Pepitone, though, he did die uh, from his attacks, but that was the last one. And after that, there were no other crimes similar to that in that area. There was no other. And like I said, they really had no idea, no suspects, no nothing. It was it, The crimes were just so random. It just seemed like some guy that got off on just breaking into people's houses and hitting them in the face while they were sleeping. Golly. Because that's pretty much and then he would just run out of the house and just toss the the axe or the or the straight razor that was all covered in blood. He'd just toss it in the yard and keep on going. <laughs> and never caught the guy. And they never caught him. And they they never had any clue who it could have been. And like I said, the, the two guys that were accused, the father and son, they eventually did get let go. Although I think they were in prison for almost a year uh, before they sorted that all out. But they did eventually let them go because there's no way they could have done it. And see, it's stuff like that, too, that like just buddies the water. So the police just like think they got the guy and then they get complacent. Yeah, and I think there's might be some aspect too, particularly uh, a crime like that that's causing such panic. I mean, there's so much pressure on the police to like catch this person because everyone's flipping out. And I kind of think that maybe they're not, maybe uh, particularly back then when they didn't have all the forensic science that we have now, they're just like, yeah, this is close enough. This is this guy. We caught him, you know? So I kind of feel like they just want to put a capper on it to get everyone to shut up and leave them alone. So they're, I don't think they're too careful about looking at the evidence or anything like that. Like I said, particularly back in those days. So the next one I want to talk about is little Lord Fauntleroy. Oh and yeah. And I want to combine that. We're going to go forward a little bit with the boy in the box. Cause these two cases are very similar. Yeah. Some 30 something years apart from each other. This yeah. is kind of sad. I mean, this is some sad stuff right here. Yeah, this one and the boy in the box are probably some of the saddest cases. I mean, they're all sad, obviously, yeah. um, especially when it's little kids. But um, this one, yeah, the ones where they where they didn't even identify the victim uh, are are really sad. But yeah, this one, Little Lord Fauntleroy, this took place in 1921 in Wisconsin. Now, this was in March, and they found a little boy. Uh, they think he was about six years old, and they found him like in a pond in a quarry. 
near this place called the O'Loughlin Stone Company. Um, they said it looked like he'd been hit in the head with a blunt object, and he'd been in the water uh, for at least a month, probably longer. They said uh, he had just brown eyes, blonde hair. Uh, they said he had really nice clothes on, as though his parents had been very wealthy, uh, which is why they called him Little Lord Fauntleroy, because he had these fancy clothes on. So they kind of, they drew a picture of the kid. They have a description of the kid. They send it out all the wire services. Um, they displayed his body at a local funeral home. Uh, they offered $1,000 for information uh, as to his identity, and no one came forward. Um, so this is weird. And so like the only clue that they had Someone that worked at the O'Loughlin Stone Company said, about a month ago, a couple came here in a car and asked if we had seen a little boy. And it said they looked kind of worried and they looked like they were looking around and stuff like that. But no one had seen the kid. You know, it would be like a month before they found the body. Um, they said, so then this couple left. And so police are saying, well, maybe little Lord Fauntleroy was kidnapped like for ransom and maybe the kidnappers told his parents and these were his parents that the kid was going to be at the quarry so they were coming there looking for him but then they said but if that was true then why did they not come forward to identify the kid when they found him um because no one ever did and the only other lead that came up, like some guy from Chicago came forward and said, you know, that could be uh, my nephew. It kind of looks like my nephew. And he's like, um, I have, he's like my sister's ex-husband uh, threatened to kill her kids. Like on a couple, he was abusive and stuff like that. But that never really went anywhere either. Um, it was kind of sad because a, a lady that lived in town, her name was Minnie Conrad, she um, kind of passed the hat around the town and raised enough money to get him a nice, get the little boy a nice headstone and stuff like that. And uh, she took care of his grave and brought flowers to it and stuff like that. And a weird thing too is that for many years afterward, there was this mysterious woman allegedly uh, that came to the cemetery where he was buried and left flowers on his grave. And she always had a veil over her face, mm. uh, but they never figured out who that was. So I don't know... I mean, I kind of want to say that every time a little kid gets killed and they, and they find them and no one comes forward to claim them, I kind of feel like maybe that that's probably their parents that killed them because otherwise their parents would come forward, you would think. Um, but I don't really know if that's the case here. But they never really did figure out who those people were that came looking for them because they did look worried. They assumed that they were this boy's parents, but they never came forward and they never found them again. So, yeah, that's a really, really very sad case. And there are still, if you uh, look online, there are still like some little drawings of what his face looked like and, you know, the little drawings that, that went around to try and identify him. Makes me think that this could be, and in the other case we're going to talk about too, that this could be kids that were maybe had some mental disability and at the time... Maybe the family couldn't take care of them or they were, you know, that they were, they were well to do. And these kids, these children were an embarrassment. It makes me think that that might've been what was going on with some of this. That could have been cases. a factor, sure. And then, yeah, 
um, yeah, if there was something the matter with them and they just said, Oh, we'll, we'll just kind of kill them and dump them over here and just not say yeah. anything about it. You'd think that other family members would recognize them, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe they kept them a secret. I guess it was easier to do back then. Yeah. Keep them in a little room. Yeah. The disappointments room. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> you know, that's what they called it. That's terrible. <laughs> so see, people back then were terrible. It wasn't the good old days at all. <laughs> yeah, the good old days when we, we <laughs> when we put uh, mentally handicapped people in little rooms and didn't feed them. Yeah, you know? and beat them up and stuff. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the boy in the box is very similar. Like yes. we we actually before I read this in your book, we actually watched something on YouTube about the boy in the box. Yeah. This one, uh, yeah, and this this actually happened much later. This was in 1957 in Philadelphia, and the kind of uh, the kind of weird thing about this is that evidently the kid's body was found by a couple of people, but neither of them wanted to report it because they were doing illegal things out in the woods. Right, uh, right. Which it's sad because the first guy he was only like poaching which to me doesn't really seem like that big of a deal. He just had like some traps or something. He's like, well, I found a dead kid in a box, but I'm not going to report it because I might get in trouble for poaching. Uh And the second guy that came across the box, he was like spying on some girls at like a nearby school or something like that, which again, (laughs) doesn't really seem like that big a deal. But uh, that guy, the second guy eventually did uh, report it. So they found this boy and he was... um, Probably about five, uh, had blue eyes, uh, you know, real pale skin. And he was wrapped up in a blanket and he was inside a cardboard box that had once contained like a baby bassinet. And they knew that this particular uh, brand of bassinet was sold by JC Penney. Um, so that was one lead they had to go by. Now, this kid had obviously been abused before death. Um, he was half starved. He was all bruised. Um, It looked like he had been beaten about the head many, many times, and that was probably what killed him. He also had uh, some some unusual scars. Uh, They said he had one under his chin. They said they had one on his ankle and one on his groin that looked like they were from surgeries. So they weren't really sure what that was all about. They also said that someone had cut his hair like into a weird like a uh, messy bowl cut. And they said it was either right before he died or right after, because there were still like cut pieces of hair, like tangled up in the blanket with him. Um, he also had like his fingers and toes were all wrinkly. Like he'd been laying in a bathtub. Um, they also think that he had probably gotten sick, like vomited shortly before he died. They could figure that out too. Um, they didn't really know because it had been really cold that winter. They didn't know how long he had been out there. Uh, they said it could have been a couple of days, could have been almost a month. They didn't know. Um, they kind of looked around the area. They found some clothes, which they presumed were his. Uh, they found a handkerchief. They found a little, uh, cap that had a leather strap on it. So they actually uh, were able to get a photograph of the kid and they were able to get fingerprints and they distributed these on flyers. They actually had um, almost half a million flyers uh, printed out and they would sent, they sent them out with the gas bills. So everyone would get one. 
And they were kind of like, oh, you know, we'll find out who this is. But they never did. They actually did track the box um, that it contained the bassinet to a particular JCPenney store in the area. Uh, but it turned out that there were four purchases of these bassinets that were unaccounted for because they were cash purchases. So they didn't have records of who had bought them. So there were four possible boxes. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean the person that bought the bassinet in that box is the person that killed the kid. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. it could have just been an old box that they found. Sure. But, you know, they yeah, they didn't uh, get anywhere with that. Uh, they took the kid's hat to the lady that had made it. She said, oh, some guy came in and bought it like months ago, but she couldn't remember anything about it. And the next thing that kind of came up was, um, it was several years. The case had kind of gone cold. And then there was a guy named Remington Bristow and, uh, he had worked in the medical examiner's office and he was kind of interested in the case. And he actually had gone to a psychic or a psychic had come to him, uh, with a tip. And they said, Oh, well, there's this family that only lives a couple miles away from where the boy in the box was found. And they, uh, are a foster family. They foster kids. And we bet that that's where that kid came from. So this guy goes to this house and he claimed, he's like, uh, that he saw a blanket like on the on the uh, line that they were drying their laundry on that looked kind of like it was like a plaid kind of blanket that looked kind of like the one that the boy in the box was covered in. And he said, Oh, and I saw a white bassinet, like the one that came in that box. So he kind of figured, Oh, well maybe this little boy was, you know, maybe the dad of this family, um, you know, was, was raping one of the foster girls and this little boy was the product of that and mm. they got rid of him. Mm. Um, but you know, much later, uh, in the late nineties, they actually did DNA tests on everyone from this family and stuff like that. And there was no match. Um, so they figured that probably wasn't the case, but then, uh, this other woman came forward and she, uh, did not want her name, uh, in the media. She's only known as M. Uh, she says, that in 1954, her mother bought this little boy from who? I don't know. But um, I don't I don't know for what purpose she bought him, but she says she bought this little boy in 1954 and his name was Jonathan. And evidently the mother was really abusive and she kind of kept him locked up and beat on him and stuff for like three years. She said, and then he was taking a bath and he threw up into the bathwater and her mother got so mad that she essentially beat him to death. Now this woman says, I helped my mother. I guess she was, she was a young girl then. She's like, I helped my mother put him in the box and take him and dump him out in the woods. So they're not real sure how credible that story is because it did kind of go out in the media that he had vomited before he died, that his fingers and toes were wrinkled as though he'd been in a bath. So they don't know if she just made that up afterwards or if that did actually happen. They're still kind of looking into that, but I don't really know if they're going to get any farther. But um, they have extracted DNA from the kid. So they're still, they did that in the late 90s. They haven't found any matches so far. 
but uh, I'm assuming that they are still looking so they can identify him because he's still, he's, he's buried under, he has a gravestone and it says America's unknown child, which I thought was kind of sad. Yeah. 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 That was the other thing. Um, was buying children a common practice or something back then? I mean, like, was this, yeah, that's what I mean. It's it's possible. That seems like another another uh, strike against the good old days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can you can I, buy children too. Those are the good old days. Fuck when you could buy a kid. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I you know I don't know how true that story is, but that's what that woman claims anyway. Oh right, well, let's get back to uh, some more axe murders. Um, <laughs> the Saint Auburn Street Massacre. Oh, this one's good. I like this one a lot. Hang on, I gotta go. This this is from, this is in uh, Rob's home state. This is this is a yes. this is a Michigan story. Yes, it is. Who? Where at Michigan? Detroit, of course. <laughs> I was expecting Flint, but okay. <laughs> this actually happened in 1929, and uh, the family, or it was it was an entire family. Uh, the guy was named Benny Evangelist. Uh, his real name was actually Benjamin Benjamin Evangelista. He was an Italian immigrant, and um, he was from Sicily. And he had lived in Detroit for a while with his family. Uh, he had a wife and four kids, and he was a carpenter. But he also claimed that he had had a vision from God, and that he. Um, it, that God told him that he needed to start a new religion. So he wrote a book, like a Bible, and it's called The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. Hmm. And he started a cult called the Union Federation of America. Um, and he'd had that running for a while. And evidently, um, he made some money off of his followers because he would have like these kind of healing sessions or like mystical kind of interventions and stuff. And he would charge them, uh, 10 bucks a pop in, you know, 1921 money or 19, you know, 29 money rather, which, uh, in today's money is about $140. So it's $140 for a healing intervention or whatever it was he was doing. So he had that going on the side. Uh, as opposed to, you know, uh, a lot of his carpentry business. So it's the summer of 1929. And the last time that Benny Evangelist is seen, he's at a house in his neighborhood that's going to be torn down. And he tells the guy that's kind of overseeing the, the place, he's like, oh, well, I arranged to buy all the wood when this is torn down. I'll be back in the morning with a crew and I'll bring the money and I'll bring the crew and we'll take the wood away. So the guy says, okay. Then the guy goes back. Then Benny goes back to his house and no one saw him alive after that. The following day, he had an appointment with a, uh, real estate agent and the real estate agent shows up at Benny's house. He finds Benny sitting at his desk without a head. Mm. The head is just in a chair next to where he's sitting. He's sitting upright with no head. Uh, his wife, whose name is Santina, uh, she was in the bed in the same room and she had almost been beheaded. Uh, their baby son had his skull smashed in and their other ch three children were also beaten to death. So 
who did this? They have no idea. Also, also all crushed heads, crushed with axes, whole entire family. Uh, the only thing they found at the scene were bloody fingerprints on the door latch of the front door. Uh, but they didn't find any matches. Um, at first they, they kind of questioned this guy named Angelo Depoli. Um, some neighbors said, Oh, he'd been around the house, you know, on a couple of occasions, he was a friend of theirs or something like that. And, uh, they said that he fat, he had a knife and it had blood on it or something like that, but nothing really came of that. They don't think he did it. The weird thing though, is that on the day he was killed that morning, he was supposed to show up at this, uh, building site and pick up this wood. And he was supposed to meet this lumber crew there that was going to take all the lumber away. So he didn't show up, obviously, because he was dead. But the lumber crew didn't show up either. So police are speculating that they're like, well, maybe somebody on this lumber crew um, wanted to rob the family. And so they kind of conspired, maybe more than one of them, and they went back and killed the family. And then they knew not to show up at this building site because they knew the entire family was dead. So they kind of looked into that, but it turned out that the cops couldn't really, they couldn't really find out what company this was or who was on the crew or anyone's names. No one really knew who these guys were or anything like that. There was, but they thought maybe that had something to do with it because all of the money that he was supposed to use to pay for the wood, uh, they never found it like in his house or anywhere else. So they don't know if there was some kind of robbery going on too. But the weird thing also is that he kind of had a lot of enemies, um, because you know, he was a cult leader. There were other rival cult leaders in the area. Evidently, I guess Detroit was kind of a hotbed of weird religious sects and like occult type of, uh, murders at the time. So they speculated that maybe it was a rival cult leader. Um, and actually a few years later, uh, there was a man who was arrested for another murder, like a cult style murder. He had like, uh, you know, stabbed him in the, uh, heart with a silver knife and he'd like laid him all out and everything like that. And, <laughs> yeah. And that guy, um, he said that he had killed the, uh, the Evangelista family too, but when they, uh, took his fingerprints and all this other stuff, it wasn't a match. So they figured that he was just admitting to that to sound like a badass, I guess. I don't know, but they don't think that he actually did it, but he did actually, but he did do the other murder. He confessed to that. And, uh, the weird thing too, is that, like I said, Detroit seemed there, there was just like a weird little in the night, late 1920s, there was some kind of weird like resurgence of like kind of occult type of stuff. And only a couple months after the evangelistas all got killed, um, there was this woman named Rose Vares, and she lived right around there. And they called her the Witch of Delray. And she was under suspicion for killing a bunch of guys that were boarding in her house. Like she would rent out rooms in her house, and then these guys would mysteriously turn up dead. And even more mysteriously, she would get like life insurance out on them <laughs> before they turned up dead. So she had killed like 10 guys like this, apparently. But even though they kind of knew she did it, no one would testify against her because they thought that she would kill them with black magic. Mm. So 
she uh, she actually did end up getting arrested later, but then she got off. So, so I don't really know what was going on at this time, but they, so they're not really sure the whole Benny evangelist thing. Could it have been, you know, a robbery? I don't know why they would ax murder the whole family and, you know, take off his head and put it on the chair. That seems personal. Yeah. Intensely personal. Yeah. Yeah. Me, that seems like a revenge, uh, or a cult style killing. Uh, could have been a robbery. Sure. That's kind of weird the way the crew didn't knew not to turn up on that day because the family were dead, but you know, that might've been just a coincidence. I kind of lean more toward maybe, maybe cult style murder. Cause that just doesn't seem like a robbery to me, like hacking little kids with an ax and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that yeah, there was definitely a religious rival or maybe a member of his cult that that's yeah. Decided that's, he had to go. Um, the Atlas Vampire. Yeah, this was a weird one. This actually happened in Sweden. The weirdest thing about this is that... Uh, okay, this is creepy. So this woman, Lily Lindestrom, they call it the Atlas Vampire because that was the name of the neighborhood in Stockholm that she lived in. It was called Atlas. And she was a prostitute. Um, she lived in an apartment and she, you know, did her prostituting out of her apartment. And, uh, she had a friend that was also a prostitute that lived, um, in the same building as her. So home-based business. Yeah, it was a home-based business <laughs> like you. And, uh, I'm actually not sure if it was legal, uh, in Sweden at the time. It might have been, but, um, so the last time that Lily was seen, she actually came downstairs to ask her friend, uh, for a condom because evidently she was entertaining a client upstairs and she had run out. So, you know, the friend gives her a condom. She goes back upstairs. And a couple days later, the friend whose name was Minnie, she's like, I haven't, I haven't seen Lily around in a couple days. So she calls her no answer. She goes up and knocks on the door. No answer. She's like, okay, that's weird. So she calls the police. So the police break in. They find Lily. She's naked on the bed, face down. Her head is bashed in. Her clothes are very neatly folded on a chair next to the bed. Um, there is still like sticky. She's very sticky, like on the back that is like saliva or something like that. Um, there is a used condom in her anus, uh, still sticking out. Um, but the weirdest thing is that there is pretty much no blood in her body. Um, and there's no blood on the bed. They find a gravy ladle that has a little bit of blood on it. <laughs> and all they can figure out is that whoever killed her drank her blood with the gravy ladle. But they can't figure out how they got all the blood out without it getting everywhere because it wasn't everywhere. I mean, she had a head wound, but that was it. It was, it was some blood there. But they're like, where did they get it from? They couldn't find any other wounds. You'd think that if they were drinking all that blood, it would be everywhere. But they said it's the only place they found it was on this ladle. And pretty much all of her blood was gone. So where did it go? They have no idea. Baffling. (laughs) It is baffling. And And the weird thing, too, is that that was the only case like that. It's not like it was a serial killer that was going around drinking people's blood with ladles or anything like that. And there was a whole bunch of them. It was just that 
and that was it. And it was, that was 1930. <laughs> they didn't, there were no other similar crimes to that or nothing. It was just this one guy just decided, Hey, I'm going to drink somebody's blood with a ladle. And, and he must've drank it all because they <laughs> not, not just dead. try it, but I'm going to fully commit and drink every drop. Like that's, <laughs> Maybe it was on his bucket list. It was just like, he's like, okay, I did that. I can check that off my bucket list. That's not, Jesus. <laughs> it's like, what? I'm just, wow. This, that one really confused me. I'm like, where did all that blood go? How you can't drink that much blood. You can't. No, you get sick. Not like, you know, from personal experience or anything, Ugh. but like, where did it go? Yeah. Just weird. Weird. There's like I said, there's so many cases like that where people are just like, Oh God. And worse. It's worse crimes back then. I think, I mean, look all the ones where like people were just like cut up and left in boxes and left in suitcases and ugh, awful. <laughs> Why do I write about this stuff? <laughs> left in trees. That was, right. the, that was the other one. The witch yeah. elm one. Witch elm, yeah. They stuffed her in a tree and they found a skeleton later on. It's just what the hell, man? Uh, I'll, that was, <laughs> kind of running low on time for this section, but uh, the solder children. This one is weird too because there's a lot of twists and turns in this one. Yeah, this one, it's like I kind of debated adding this one because they're like, they're not even really sure if this one was a murder because they're like, well, was it an accident? Did they die? If they did die, was yeah. it all her? Anything like that. It was just a, this really weird case. Yeah, this happened in 1945. And it was right around Christmas time. I think it was Christmas Eve. And um, so it's the Sauter family. Uh, they have 10 kids, uh, but nine of, nine of them live in the house. One of them's in the army. But <clears throat> so they're having Christmas at home or whatever. And uh, a couple of the kids wanted to stay downstairs to stay up late and play with their new toys and stuff like that. So the parents were like, okay, fine. So they went to bed. Now, Later that night, the the wife, Jenny, she was woken up by the phone ringing and she picked it up and it was like, a, I guess it was like a wrong number. It sounded like somebody, they said it was a woman with like a weird laugh and she could hear people talking in the background and she's just like, I don't know who that is. And she hung up and she comes out in the room and she's, some of the kids are like asleep on the couch and stuff like that. And some of the kids that were downstairs aren't there, but she's like, well, they probably just went upstairs because they had a room up in the attic. So she kind of locks up the house and goes back to bed. And then she wakes up about half an hour later. She hears something heavy hitting the roof and rolling down it. And she's like, huh, I wonder what that was. But she didn't really think that much about it. She goes back to sleep. Then a little while later, she wakes up and she smells smoke. So she wakes her husband up so they think the house is on fire. So the fire looked like it had started in George Sodder's office. And that maybe it had come out of the fuse box but it was spreading really fast. So uh, Jenny and George, they got some of their kids and then they tried to get the five kids that were upstairs on the attic level, but they couldn't get up there because the fire was had just like consumed the staircase. So they said, well, we'll try and get them from outside. So they run outside the house. And the first thing that George tried to do, and this is one of the weird things that makes me think that this was probably a murder. So George Sauter runs around to the side of the house. He's going to climb up to the window to get the kids out. He usually has this big ladder, like uh, propped against the side of the house because he uses it to work on the roof or whatever. The ladder is not there. 
And he has no idea where it went. And he's like, okay, well, all right, whatever. So then they try to use the phones, like the neighbor's house. None of the phones are working um, or the operator, you know, system is not working. I don't know if it was because there was some kind of like technical problem or if it was like short staffed because it was a holiday or whatever. So then George tries to, he's like, um, you know, he's like, well, I'll try and use one of my work trucks um, to climb up to the window, the attic window to get the kids out. Neither of the trucks would start, even though they had started the day before. Hmm. So all of this weird stuff is happening. So finally they get hold of the fire department and they're like, well, we're really short staffed. It's a holiday. And then the fire chief, whose name is FJ Morris says, Oh, well, you guys will have to wait because I don't know how to drive the fire truck. He's the fire chief and he doesn't know how to drive the fire truck. So yeah, he's like, oh. That was bizarre too. Like what in the world? Right. This is like, it, this is really like, I'm not a big like conspiracy person or anything like that, but this sure. is definitely kind of like, there's some stuff going on here. So he's like, well, you'll have to wait until, you know, somebody comes in that knows how to drive the fire truck. So even though the fire had started like at one thirty, two in the morning, the fire department didn't get there until eight the next morning, by which time the house had completely burned to the ground, evidently with the five children still in it. So they do like a kind of perfunctory investigation and they're like, Oh, well it was an accident. It was faulty wiring. You know, we'll have the fire marshal will come and they'll do like a more thorough investigation and everything will be, you know, sorted out or whatever. So the more they thought about it, like George and Jenny were obviously devastated because five of their children they think are dead. Um, in fact, George Sauter was so upset that he didn't even want the fire marshal to come back and do the investigation or anything like that. He just bulldozed the whole lot over. He's like, I don't want to even look at it. I'm going to build a memorial to my kids and that'll be the end of it. I don't want to think about it anymore. But then the more they thought about it, they were thinking this fire was not an accident. They're like, one, they found It was in a ravine about 70 yards so away from you, you kind of You kind of cut out there for a second. Sorry, Jimmy. Oh, I, oh okay. Uh, what did they find? They found the ladder. Okay. Ah, okay. Propped against the house. Uh, they found it about 70 yards away in a ravine, as if someone had thrown it there so they wouldn't be able to reach the upper windows. Um, they also found that their telephone lines had been cut. Um, they suspected that probably faulty wiring was not the reason because George Sauter remembered that their Christmas lights had stayed on, uh, throughout almost all of the fire, which probably wouldn't have been the case, uh, had faulty wiring been the issue. Um, and they also, while one of their other children was kind of, uh, playing around the site, you know, several days later, she found this little round rubber object that looked like some kind of bomb. And uh, then Jenny Sauter remembered that noise that she had heard like a half an hour before the fire of something hitting the roof. And they started wondering if maybe someone had like firebombed their house. And someone else, like another bus driver that had been in the area said, yeah, we think we saw somebody throwing something at your house around that time. So, and then George Sauter remembers that he had these like two 
visitors that came to the house. Like one was like a door to door insurance salesman. And he's like, he hadn't thought anything about it at the time, but he said, the guy said something like your house is going to go up in smoke and your children will be destroyed. Mm. (laughs) And then there was another guy that came to the house and he was like looking for a job or something like that. And while he was walking around the back of the house, he pointed to the fuse box and said, Hey, that's going to cause a fire one day. So he's like, he didn't think about it at the time, but obviously after the house burned down, he's like, well, that's pretty weird. And also they thought it was strange that they never found the five children's bodies because, you know, even, I mean, anybody that works in a crematorium, they know, I mean, you have to have a very, very, very hot fire for several hours um, to burn a body down to, and even then you have to crush up the bones. So the fact that they didn't find any bodies or any bones, um, they started to think that was a little weird too. And then they started to think that maybe the kids weren't dead after all, but that they had been kidnapped. Um, George Sauter, apparently he was very anti Mussolini and a lot of the, you know, he was kind of big in the Italian immigrant community because he was a business owner and stuff like that. And he had gotten in a lot of arguments um, with other uh, people in the community who were Mussolini supporters. And he started to speculate because also the mafia were kind of powerful in the area and they were Mussolini supporters also. And he wondered that maybe if him going around uh, shouting off about how much he hated Mussolini um, had kind of put him on someone's hit list. But the weird thing, though, like I said, because they never found the kids' bodies or anything like that, then it started to come to light that some people came forward and claimed that they had seen the kids after the fire. Like a woman who lived near them said, you know, I saw like the night of the fire, I saw five little kids in a car that was going by. And, um, some other people like it, like uh, a waitress at a cafe said those kids were in here. Like I gave them breakfast and they were in here with a couple and they left in a car with Florida license plates. So they start, so the solder started to believe, well, the kids are still alive. So for years and years and years, they just, they spent thousands and thousands of dollars on rewards. They put up billboards, they sent out flyers, you know, they just published ads and everything like that. Um, for any information about their kids. And really, I think the only thing that came out about it, they, they one time got a letter and they got a photograph that um, someone had sent them. It wasn't actually him that sent it, but someone sent it and said, I think this is your son, Lewis. You know, he's grown up now. And they believed that it was, but they could never establish if it was or not. And the sad thing was that um, George and Jenny Sauter both died without ever knowing if their kids died or not. I mean, you would think uh, at this point, I don't know, it's it, Occam's razor would say they just died in the fire and they got burned up and that was the end of it. But there were so many weird little details, like what was that bomb thing that they found and what was with the phone lines being cut and what was with the ladder being in the ravine, like where it, not where it was supposed to be. What, what about his car is not starting? It's like, So I don't know if the kids are dead or if somebody just took them. Like you'd think if someone wanted to get revenge on him specifically, they would just burn the house down and kill everyone in it. 
rather than going to the trouble of kidnapping the kids. Yeah. Evidently, some people said that they had seen them. So I don't really know how all of that is going to shake out, if it ever will. Well, like we talked about with the boy in the box case, I mean, the possibility that this kid was sold. Yeah. So if if there's this time period and still happens now, unfortunately... Yeah. Where children are children are kidnapped and sold. I mean, that could be a pot. That could be a real possibility that that's yeah, that that's sure. what happened. Um, maybe somebody figured, well, they have enough kids, so we'll just steal five of them, make it look like it's a weird accident. Yeah, it sounds like whatever they were, whatever they were, um, whatever that she heard bouncing off the roof could have been like a Molotov cocktail or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely yeah. something like that. Yep. So we barely scratched the surface <laughs> on <laughs> a lot <laughs> on a lot what's in the book. So uh Jenny, tell everybody where they can get the book and um what the next book, what years that's gonna cover. Okay. Uh the book is called The Faceless Villain, and you can obviously get it on Amazon, like you can get everything on Amazon. Uh the print version and the ebook version are both out. Uh, I'm still working on the audio book version, um, probably just a, a, another day or two of editing and then, you know, it has to go through uh, quality control. So it'll probably be up in about two weeks if you would rather have the audio version. And uh, volume two is probably going to cover 1960 to 1980 or maybe 1985. Uh, I haven't decided where I want to do the cutoff yet, but uh, that should be out. I'm going to try and have it out by next summer if not sooner okay Uh, because i've already started doing the outline and everything like that for it so uh keep an eye out for that but you know read this one first (laughs) absolutely well thank you so much jenny and stay on the line for us because guys we're going to do a patreon only for our with jenny uh for our patrons and guys we'll be right back on this show on conspiracy normal I, you know what? Okay. I I love true crime. Here's the thing. Alyssa watches all these like, uh-huh. you know, true detective, like whatever, like all these, all yeah. kinds of these, these true crime things. So I, I see this I stuff too. all the time. And I'm always like, I never turn it on, but when it's on, I can't look away and I can't get away from it. And then I can't stop thinking about it. And it's just like, it, it's horrifying and fascinating at the same, like, like when you pass a car crash and like, you're like, don't look, don't look. Oh yeah. And then you like glance and look mm-hmm. like it's that same, like. You just, you can't, it's, I can't help myself. Like it's right. just, ugh. But the whole time she's like talking about like, you know, children's heads being bashed in and the dude's head sitting in the chair next I to know. him. And like, <laughs> like, ugh. God. I know. The things humans are capable of doing to other humans is so much more terrifying than anything that you could come up with fictionally. 
And it got even worse, even more descriptive when we had Tom. Oh my with, god! With us for the oh my god, uh, Patreon you guys have to only episode. Oh my god, that was awesome. <laughs> we might have to put a, a warning on that one. Yeah, <laughs> if you have children in the room, get them out of the room quick. Not safe for work. <laughs> Most definitely, dude. But Most great. That was good though, man. I, I'm glad. Uh, we're, we're definitely going to have Jenny back on, and I'm going to try to look for some more true crime guests and some more true crime topics. Yeah, I think it's a real popular thing right now, and and I've always kind of been into it, and have tried to find some ways to. Uh, I'm going to try for some ways to kind of incorporate it into the show. People are really interested. Really eat this stuff up. I'm interested. I know I do. Yeah, I love it. Like so. I know there is a guy out there that uh, did a whole book about uh, a couple of books about uh, Ted Bundy, and there's an author, actually an author I think that lives here in Nashville that's written some books about some true crime stuff around the Tennessee area. Oh, that'd be fun, like so, Tennessee only stuff. Yeah, so we might uh, we might get to talk about that. Um, try to pursue there's something to think about for like the new year um, and, and into next year. Uh, real quick, guys. Uh, I just wanted to bring some stuff up. Can I start? Yeah, you can, can start. start. Quick? You can right. start. You can start. I feel like every now and then it's important for us to reiterate our mission statement as okay. a podcast. We 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 we're here not to to necessarily judge or criticize. We we want to find the truth as much as anybody else, but that's not our sole purpose in doing this podcast. We we want to bring the stories to the table. For you guys, there's because there's two of us. There's thousands of you. Like we want you to listen to things. We want to expose you to everything in the other, whether it's on the far, you know, ridiculous end of the spectrum, or whether it's like true crime stuff, like we did tonight. And it's it's up to you what you want to believe and how you want to take it and where you want to go with it. And yeah. so that being said, sometimes we have guests that are a little, you know, to one side or the other. But we we don't necessarily ever call anybody out or or judge anyone for their perspectives as far as guests go even if we don't believe in them we have opposing um ideas all the time we'll have back-to-back episodes where people have completely different ideas and yeah and that's kind of what we want to do with this you know we, we, we want you guys to be exposed to all of it and be able to to kind of come up with your own ideas so you know, every now and then we also we get we get a lot of emails about oh well, this guy was full of crap here and I don't believe this and I'm not going to listen to your podcast anymore because you let somebody say this or that or the other thing and it's like okay that's fine that's we, we don't have an agenda we don't we're not using this as a platform to to portray our beliefs and our ideas like Adam and I don't agree on a lot of things but we're still here in the same room and we're still sure. listening to all these different stories and different mm-hmm. ideas and that's. That's kind of how I see our show. So I hope that you guys are all with us on that, or at least most of you are with us on that. Like, for instance, I mean, <laughs> when we had uh, we had Chris Wolford on, you know, I don't agree that the Tom DeLong stuff is ever going to generate any kind of fruit. And he knows I don't agree with him. Right. But I wanted to give him a forum that he could talk about it. Right. And, and just think, because I don't believe something doesn't mean anything because I don't really know shit. Yeah, I, I think I think the main, um, you know, it was when we when we spoke to Augie Nose. This this is what this is in reference to. Yeah, I had this I had this message on Facebook. I don't really respond to these messages, the kind of negative messages, because I don't feel like 
I'm going to change. First of all, I don't feel like I'm going to change the person's mind. And second of all, it's kind of my, well, philosophy that we've kind of picked up from Greg Bishop of do not engage yeah. because it's really, pointless. it's not fruitful. Yeah, it isn't. Um, interestingly enough, after all the weird stuff that Augie had said about creatures on Mars and swastika bases on the moon and all this weirdness, which a lot of people got that. Like a lot of people got that, you know, we we're having him on, he's airing his views. There's an entertainment value you you either take it seriously or you're entertained by it. That's how it goes. Okay, those are the two options there. Um, after all that, this person that messaged me said that they took umbrage at the fact that he that Augie said he got his news from Russia today. Now, I will suffice to say that this is a person that's on the left hand side of the spectrum. Politically, a few shows ago when we had Jeff in here and it was the three, only the three of us, Jeff was talking about things from the left-hand side of the spectrum. And I got a lot of people that said that Jeff was unfair to people, to, to conservatives. So we can't really win when somebody is voicing their political views. Right. Don't take us so personally. <laughs> We are in a very poisoned atmosphere right now politically. And that's why on this show, even though there's some times we just can't avoid it, we just kind of backed away from all the political stuff because there's just too much to cover and too much crap happening every single day. But it gets to the point where I get it. You know, you think I've lost credibility because... I didn't challenge somebody that their that their stuff came from their information came from Russia today. So be it. I'm I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not necessarily worried about where he got where he gets his information. Um I think the poison political atmosphere right now, people are taking stuff way too seriously. And that's a problem. And we're really trying not to be part of that problem. Absolutely. Um, And moreover, we just, like I said, we just want to throw ideas out there that you might otherwise not be exposed to. You know, Augie Nost, he's, he's got his thing going on. He's got his internet stuff and his you know all of his posts and you know we have a lot of other guests on that that have the same thing they have they have all these different ideas and all these different theories and whatever we are trying to throw them out to you guys so that you can go and judge them and either agree with them on the internet or flame them on the internet or do whatever you want with the information it's just it's just that it's somebody else's information that we're handing to you so but i will i'm going to accentuate the positive here Oh, good. Um, we did get a review, I believe, today. Now, this is November 14th, which, you know, it's going to be a week later when this comes out. Um, trying to find it here because I just thought about this. But this was actually two day that this happened. 
Oh. So let's see here. See all. Yep. Words. If first of all, they say it's insane with my name. S a y n e. Words that describe conspiracy: normal, brilliant, insightful, casual, easy to listen to, fresh, incisive. Even when really not awesome, is yet somehow still awesome. Doesn't take itself too seriously, but simultaneously is serious when it counts. Rob has become an amazing co-host. Luke, come back more often, even a brief appearance. Adam genuinely invests serious time and effort in the show and even reads the guest books. Far and away, my favorite podcast. Would love to hear Dr. Future on again sometime for an update if he's available. That was from Super Trooper 3354 on iTunes. Oh, thanks, so Super I will Trooper. accentuate the positive and not the negative. Because even if you know you're from whatever side you are on when you take the political you you are gonna take a political standpoint, it's easy to emphasize the negative. Just my take on it. So that's it. Um next time, guys, we've got Brian Godalba coming back on. We're gonna talk about a couple of his books, and I've got another guest that's gonna be with us too. Uh, which I'm really excited that who's a, who's a longtime listener, uh, who's an illustrator for DC comics. Oh, so awesome. Really, really happy about that. Um, but I think we'll call it man. Yeah. So, uh, tell everybody about Patreon and also guys, we, we, as we mentioned, we did a Patreon only episode with Tom and Jenny. And that should be up the same time. This show is up. Yep. Sometime so, actually possibly before you're hearing this. Um, go to www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Uh, we've got quite a few up there now, monthly episodes, um, bonus episodes. And you, as soon as you subscribe, you have access to that whole library and it's just going to continue to grow. Um, you know, there's several tiers of, uh, contributions there. If you don't want to contribute there, you can go to our website and do a one-time contribution. And if you don't want to do that, you can do another, uh, nice five-star iTunes review like we just received today. And maybe we'll start reading all of those at the end of the episodes. So uh, yeah. if some of you guys want to do that, next week we'll read them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will be back on Conspiranormal with no heads on chairs.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.